EK Publishing Media presents The Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 5. Do all houses carry secrets? If so, what horror stories might they be able to tell us? What terrors have some walls witnessed? And just how dark does it get in the deepest recesses of some cursed places? The House on Swanson's Landing. Act 1. Will remembered he and Sandra had just finished organizing his Pokemon cards for the third time. That's when the horror living beneath them reared its ugly head and changed their lives forever. I'm bored, Sandra got up and left the room. She wore a pair of purple shorts and a yellow class t-shirt with the names of her classmates scrawled all over the back. Sandra had hit her growth spurt after she turned 13 over the summer and now she stood two feet taller than both Will and Amy. Will followed her into the kitchen where they could hear Spongebob cackling away on the television as Amy lay in a mass of blankets at the foot of their aunt who was snoring on the couch in an upright position. Aunt Kara had a pile of her knitting pieces and patches on her lap with her threaded knitting needles still resting in her grasp. Hearing Sandra and Will into the kitchen, Amy sat up and emerged from her blankets to join them. Amy had turned ten in the early spring. Her brown hair was in pigtails and she wore a pair of Hello Kitty footy pajamas. Aunt Kara is snoring. She whispered before a thrum of thunder rattled the windows in the living room and kitchen. Too bad we can't go to Whataburger, Sandra sighed, opening the door to the fridge. She grabbed three cheese sticks and split the trio to give one to each of her younger siblings. You guys want to go up to the attic? Dad said not to, Amy said. Nothing up there anyway, Will shrugged. This place is so boring, Sandra said, referring to both the lake house and the surrounding country around Swanson's Landing. And it's been raining for the last week, Will added. He wore a long-sleeved shirt and a pair of thermal pants over his winter socks. You can read me the next Harry Potter book if you want, Amy suggested. Why don't you read it yourself, Sandra said. Mom said it's too scary. Go get it, Sandra sighed. Water from the downpour of rain splashed the kitchen window as Sandra and Will picked apart their cheese sticks. Amy romped down the hallway by the kitchen to go get her book. The two heard a book slide from the bookshelf, a loud commotion, and the heavy sound of something slamming against the wall. Amy screamed, and then there was the sound of books slapping against the floor. Sandra and Will hurried into the hall corridor to see Amy on the floor covering her face as books rained upon her from the bookcase that was overturned in the corridor. Will looked toward the living room and heard Aunt Kara still snoring. Sandra hurried to help Amy, but when Will looked back to the trouble, what he saw was far more concerning than a furious Aunt Kara. He stared over Sandra and Amy to the square opening of a threshold behind where the bookcase had been. Are you okay? Sandra asked. I think so, Amy replied as Sandra hurriedly uncovered Amy from the mass of dusty paper and hardback books their parents had stacked on the shelves when they moved in two months prior. Little help, Will? Sandra growled over her shoulder as Will stepped closer to look into the yawning darkness behind the bookcase. Sandra followed his attention and craned her neck back to look behind the bookcase that was leaning against the opposite wall over Amy. What is that? I don't know, Will said. Amy kicked and shoved books off of her as Sandra helped. Five minutes later, as Amy nursed her bruised and stubbed toe, Will and Sandra had stacked the books to one side of the hall corridor, and had pulled aside the bookshelf to reveal the entrance to a dark stairwell. The wooden steps turned and descended into humid darkness. What is it? Amy asked. I'm getting it, Kara. Will turned, but Sandra grabbed his arm. Don't, she said. Let's see where it goes. What if someone's down there? Will inquired. No one's down there, Sandra assured him. I'll go get Dad's flashlight from the garage. Amy and Will glanced at one another and then looked back down into the yawning entrance to the underground stairwell. 
Cobwebs hung like drapes over the threshold to the hidden passage. Sandra returned a few minutes later with a flashlight and an electric lamp that she gave to Amy. Will quickly ran to the fireplace in the living room and grabbed a fire poker from the metal rack against the brick frame. Aunt Kara was snoring louder than before as he ran past her, ignoring the sound of television commercials as he hurried back to Sandra's side. Clicking on the flashlight, Sandra dropped down the wooden steps and turned with the spiral as Will and then Amy followed her down into the darkened depths. They wiped cobwebs from the air as they made their way to a narrow wooden corridor. What made them stop in their tracks were the scratch marks that were clearly visible on the wooden paneled walls. There must have been hundreds of them leading down the channel to a single wooden door with a golden doorknob that glinted menacingly in the darkness of the already terrifying passage. Sandra continued to where they could see deep gouges in the white paint upon the door. I don't like this, Will said. I'm scared, Amy squealed. There's nothing down here, Sandra whispered over her shoulder. She grabbed the doorknob and opened the door. Will peered over her shoulder to see the scanning of her flashlight moving across a small room. An eerie metallic smell hit them all at once. Oh wow, what's that smell? She covered her mouth. The beam of Sandra's flashlight reflected off a tall, dusty rectangular mirror that was mounted upon the wall. There were books on shelves that wrapped around the room in an ancient armchair beneath an overhead light. Will reached to the right of the door and flipped a light switch. The overhead fluorescent light blinked into existence. The light was so dim that it didn't illuminate much behind the bookshelves throughout the tightly enclosed secret room. What is that? Amy pointed to a desk on the opposite side of the room. It covered the whole wall and there was a sink next to a large chopping board. Amy had walked over but stopped when her feet clacked on a metal grate installed on the floor. Is that blood? Will asked as the three could clearly see splatters of red blood staining the wall beyond the chopping board. Okay, Sandra turned and shoved Will and Amy back toward the doorway. Time for us to get the heck out of here. The three went back upstairs and closed off the room for the rest of the afternoon. Their parents got home at five and they told them everything. Sandra told them exactly what happened, Will told much of the same, and Amy told them how many zombies there were down there. Would you be quiet, said Will. There were no zombies down there. It was crazy, Amy said. The three kids watched their father, still in his work clothes, pull back the shelf and peer into the darkened stairwell. Sandra handed him the flashlight and he and their mom entered the stairwell for a few minutes before coming back up. Their faces were wide with shock when they returned. I'm going to make some calls. Their dad shook his head and put the bookshelf back to cover the stairwell. Nobody go into that stairwell from now on, understood? He warned the three of them. Sandra, Amy, and Will nodded. The next day, the police arrived to clear everything out of the basement. Over the course of the next few weeks, different people in lab coats went down to examine the hidden room in fine detail. The only thing that remained after they left and once a cleaning crew had thoroughly removed all the blood was the mirror fused to the wall. They took the desk and chopping board out completely as well as many of the panels of the walls. The kids didn't know the details of what happened for a number of years, but a clear picture emerged ten years later when Will was 22. One of the detectives that worked the Swanson's Landing case, Mr. Charlie Cartwright, wrote a book about the serial killer who had lived in their house before them long after Will, Sandra, and Amy had moved on with their lives. Charlie Cartwright had given them three copies of the book, but the kids had been too busy in school or working in Sandra's case, and their mother was too scared to read it, but their father did. Will always wondered if it was a coincidence that their parents decided to move to South Lake, Texas shortly after their dad read Cartwright's book, or if they were really doing financially well enough to move back to the city. It was shortly after Will finished with his engineering degree that his father asked if he wanted to keep the Swanson's Landing house. 
I know it's not great for an aspiring kid, but it might be something you could keep until you find a job and then rent out or even sell yourself. If you don't want it, we'll sell it, Will's father had said as they stood on the back lawn looking out over the lake beyond the cliffs ahead. Sandra and Amy already said no, and I don't blame them. I love the house, but, Will said, swallowing as he realized that he had never been alone in the house without feeling uncomfortable. How many people do you think Marvin Baxter killed in that house? Will asked. His dad didn't say anything for a few seconds. 83, he said. Will's jaw dropped. Confirmed. Could be as many as 200. Are you serious? Will gaped at his father. Might be more for all I know. They never found the bodies related to that guy. Regardless, I wouldn't make a decision until you read Mr. Cartwright's book. Will did read Cartwright's book and knew that there had been a reason he had delayed learning more about Marvin Baxter. He wasn't a big reader, but he read Cartwright's 300-page book in less than 12 hours. It hadn't occurred to Will that the house might be haunted until he read the nightmarish tale of how a man butchered at least 83 young women between the ages of 14 and 26 in the hidden basement he'd built himself. Not a single victim was found. Marvin Dean Baxter was born in December of 1956. His father had lost both legs in a firebombing during World War II, but that didn't stop him from beating the snot out of Marvin when Marvin did something wrong. He died of pancreatic cancer when Marvin was eight years old. Marvin went on to live with his father's younger sister and her husband. They claimed they offered him a peaceful and happy home, but Marvin was frequently running away, starting fires or torturing the animals from the small towns around Big Lake on both sides of the Texas and Louisiana border. What linked Marvin to such a ghastly number of murders were his keepsakes, items that had belonged to the victims that were carefully labeled and covered with Marvin's DNA in all forms. That and the journal he kept detailing the killings. William hadn't recalled how much activity had actually taken place, but the police had dragged the lake and searched every inch of their house for clues after the kids discovered the hidden entrance. Still, no body had ever been recovered. As unpleasant as the evidence was, nothing unnerved Cartwright quite as much as how many bodies Marvin claimed to have disappeared, as well as the places where each victim came from. Marvin's adopted father and mother knew something wasn't right with Marvin, but he had still excelled in his school studies well enough to finish college at the University of Texas in Austin. Wanting to move into the city, Marvin's aunt and uncle moved to Nashville, Tennessee and let Marvin stay in the house where he got a job in an industrial plant north of Marshall, Texas. It was during his weekends throughout the late 70s and 80s that he would drive all over the country and kidnap women from their homes. He claimed in his notes that the police couldn't track him if he picked targets at random. The technique seemed to have been largely successful in a pre-DNA evidence world. But then all of that, the insanity and madness of what had already transpired on Swanson's Landing, it wasn't even the crazy part. What shocked everyone and inspired Cartwright to write his book was why Martin claimed to have done these things. It wasn't for sexual pleasure or some need to feel dominance. It was because he had supposedly created a portal to another world where a god demanded the life of an innocent or else it would destroy Marvin Baxter and all of his kind in the blink of an eye. Marvin Baxter had sacrificed these women, killed each of them to extract their hearts to feed a fictitious monster. It was insanity, pure and simple, except there were still the missing bodies. DNA matching on the blood did confirm at least 12 of the women Marvin had supposedly abducted. Attempts to contact relatives relayed the usual response about a troubled boy who had obviously gone bad. The few who knew him better than others were shocked to learn what he spent much of his off time doing. The big question was where on earth had Marvin Baxter gone? He, just like his victims, had seemingly vanished into thin air. Act 2 
The idea that the police hadn't caught this monstrous killer, Marvin Baxter, and that he left without tying up the last of his evidence is what worried William Barry more than the house being the setting for ritualistic sacrifice. He went through a series of emotions on the matter. At first, Will wanted to call his father and tell him that he wanted nothing to do with the house. Then he remembered how many years they had lived there and everything was perfectly fine. A fear of missing out sensation passed over him as he was driving to the grocery store in Marshall. If the house was sold, whoever inherited it would be sitting on one of the most fascinating research projects in East Texas. The potential horror of an almost true Texas chainsaw massacre would be wildly popular. And Will was about to throw that away for pocket change? No, he needed to know more. After reading Cartwright's book, an obsessive mindset fell over him. He threw his groceries from the Berkshires into the back seat of his car and then went over to the police station. The receptionist, a young woman with beautiful green eyes wearing a police uniform, looked up at him through the open window at the information desk. Hey, who would I talk to about obtaining more information on the Swanson's landing case? William asked. The woman laughed. That's all FBI. They took everything, no exceptions. I can give you the investigations department's card and the case number. They'll contact you from there. Disheartened, William spent the next two weeks playing phone tag with several agents who eventually landed him on the phone with a woman named Carol Sheffield. Well, would you want to take a drive out to D.C.? I can't cover your expenses, but if you're this far into the research and you're still curious, I can show you what I have here. I'm mostly curious about the journal, William said as he sat at the desk in his bedroom. His parents were loading up their things in the moving truck as they began their move for South Lake that afternoon. Everybody always is, Carol sighed. I get about 20 bloggers a week, researchers, analysts, amateur sleuth tumblers, you name it. They all want pictures of the journal and detailed case notes about the victim's possessions. I give very few people the green light. Since you lived there when the stuff got found and still live there now, I guess it kind of makes sense for you to know everything possible. But could you do me a solid if I do help you out? What is it? Will asked. Could you compile enough pictures and documents there to keep future buyers of that house from going through this whole spiel? That case is pretty much closed. Most likely, Marvin Baxter got caught by some farmer and was shot to death. Doesn't take much to hide a body in a cornfield. But considering who the bastard was, good fucking riddance. Sure, I'm not, like, a writer or anything, but I can take photos if you'll let me. Please, I'll email you the address and information. Your choice how to get here. Like I said, unless you have evidence that can bring the guy in, there's not much in the way of compensation I can give you. Maybe lunch if you're interested. Sounds good. I'll see you Monday. Good luck, stay safe. Carol Sheffield hung up and Will hurried downstairs. His father rolled down the back door to the moving truck and latched it. Should be a straight four hours and we're home. Sure you don't want to come with us? No, I've got plenty left to do to get settled in. Thanks for letting me keep the place, Will said. Sure, but I don't know. Will's father glanced at the house overlooking the lake with its darkened windows. It was an overcast afternoon, and without anyone to occupy the inhabitants, it looked hollow and dead. We always stayed safe in numbers. Be careful in there by yourself. Try not to take all that serial killer stuff too seriously. I won't. Thanks, Dad, Will said and saw his parents off. Will watched them turn back down the dirt road driveway. They waved at one another as their moving truck turned onto the asphalt road and disappeared behind the trees. The flight to Washington, D.C. was enjoyable. Will had only been on a plane two or three times before. He took an Uber from the airport to the address Carol had given to him. Fifteen minutes later, Will was sitting in a waiting room in the FBI headquarters, which was far less interesting than he would have thought from all the movies and television shows. He didn't even see any federal agents until he met Carol in an empty office on the bottom floor of the building. 
She was a short woman in her mid-fifties with thick black-rimmed glasses. She had short blonde hair and wore a black skirt with a matching black blazer over her white blouse. What was odd were the black New Balance tennis shoes on her feet. Carol had brought two boxes of evidence that had dozens of separate bags spilling from the top. Sorry to dump all this on you and leave, but I have an appointment in ten minutes. Lunch in two hours sound good? Carol asked. Sounds good, Will said. Think you can keep yourself busy with all that while I'm gone? I might need more time, Will said. Good. I don't think I need to remind you not to post all that on the internet. Nope, just for my own personal use, Will smiled at her. She winked at him and then closed the glass door to the office, leaving him alone with the key relics of Marvin Baxter's dark world. He withdrew a number of articles from the boxes, mostly women's underwear that had been sealed in baggies by first responders, probably while Will was in school daydreaming about silly things. He withdrew notes and bills belonging to the women he murdered. Marvin Baxter had a sick obsession with the idea that these women existed. Having murdered them, hanging onto their possessions as a keepsake gave him power over their existence and memory even years after his victims had been slain. At the bottom of the box, Will found several Mead notebooks with yellowing pages. Within their confines were Polaroid pictures of the victims while they were alive. Written in the spaces between the pictures, Marvin Baxter had written in his perfect cursive handwriting in detail how he strangled, beat, or gouged his victims to death. Some of the pictures were taken within the basement room of their house, and all of those, each victim had a permanent look of terror on their face. Usually the pictures surrounding that picture were Polaroids that they themselves took that Marvin had stolen. There were baby pictures, elementary school photos, senior yearbook cutouts. Most people learn how to cook or build trains, but Marvin was into people. Will found numerous photos of selfies between Marvin and his later victims, like they were friends. He was bald with a friendly face and strong arms. He had picked each victim at random, and they were all women. That told Will that Marvin's religious sacrifice alibi was bullshit as well. Every picture brought up the same questions, and there were a lot of pictures. Where were the bodies? How had all of the evidence been contained to the basement? Where had Marvin taken them, and was he with them now? Did he do it alone? Will made a list of questions to ask Carol, but most of his questions were answered in the case notes. The last person to see Marvin was Marvin's stepfather at approximately 7 in the evening on March 4, 1992. According to his stepfather, Gordon Taylor, Marvin didn't say much and had been more reclusive than usual. He regularly visited Nashville each year, and that's the last time his stepfather had seen him. When investigators asked about his last known employer at the industrial plant north of Marshall about Marvin, they said they hadn't seen him since November of 1991. He had no girlfriend, or even friends for that matter. Aside from the addresses of the victims that he kept in the notebooks along with their pictures, Marvin had a normal address book because no one had cell phones in 1992. No one from that address book knew anything about Marvin, and most only knew him in passing from decades earlier. Will kept digging, searching for clues to where he might have gone. There were some peculiar pictures along with the ones he had taken in the basement. Will only noticed about 12 photos that didn't come out properly amidst the others. When he looked closely, it looked like the victim was in a cave. The silhouette showed them on their knees and everything around them was overexposed, making the picture look like something had gone wrong in the development process. There were also weird descriptions of a place that was like something out of a fantasy novel. Marvin detailed a temple that no one could find that didn't exist in any place he had ever known with a people that didn't seem interested in his whereabouts. Within, he had found the god that he was sacrificing all these women to. Will thought it was strange that Marvin mentioned such intricate details about a fictional place between these awful descriptions of brutal sacrifice, but did they really make him any more or less crazy? 
he glanced at the clock and saw that it was almost noon. Will spent the rest of his time taking pictures and videos of everything in every page of each notebook. He didn't want to fill his mind with this horror, but that unending curiosity kept growing stronger. It was like a drug, and the more breakthroughs he made, the more of it he wanted. One thing I'm curious about, began Will over hamburgers at the local burger shop around the block from the FBI building. Carol had paid for his meal and ate across from him in a booth near the front window of the restaurant. I don't want to be forward, but it is the elephant in the room. There's no mention of sexual assault. You're exactly right, Carol said. He never mentioned it in his journals. He did keep their underwear, which is usually a sign of foul play prior to the disappearance of the victim. It means that he had a sexual return of some kind from the investment. However, there's no evidence to suggest he actually sexually assaulted them. I'd be more quick to assume, but there's not a single mention of sex in his descriptions. It's like he wasn't interested. Maybe a woman's underwear is the smallest personal effect he could reasonably hold on to. Convenience or something, Will suggested. Carol shrugged like she didn't care. She had gone over the guy a million times and hadn't had any insights into Marvin's dealings in decades. The burden of responsibility was far more important to take on with fresher cases where her thinking outside the box might be more useful. Listen, Carol said after she finished her hamburger and closed the paper wrapper in one withered fist. It's fun to play amateur sleuth while it's innocent, but if you figure something out from all this, make sure you let me know. Don't go knocking on doors on your own thinking you might crack this thing. Don't worry, I don't think I have the balls to do anything like that. Will took a deep breath, gathering his trash to throw it away. Got everything you need? Carol asked. I think so. I can always come back or call you if I need. Not that I don't like you, said Carol, but try to avoid calling me unless you've got a serious reason to do so. Understood. Will bid her farewell and started his long journey back to the Swanson's Landing lake house. It had started snowing by the time he arrived. He walked around the ledge overlooking the lake far below while smoking a cigarette. Wintry mist settled over the lake so he couldn't see beyond the wall of white surrounding the few miles around the lake house. He noticed the mist's reflection against the placid surface of the lake. He thought about the fantasy descriptions Marvin had written between the Polaroids he had pasted together in the disgusting scrapbook of his life. He hadn't gone down into the basement since he and Andrew used it as a secret place to get high back when the two were in college a few years back. He took down all the books on the bookshelf in the hall corridor that had belonged to his parents. After cracking a beer, he descended the spiral steps with a flashlight and entered the basement that was uncomfortably quiet. He could hear the waves lapping on the shoreline in the distance, but other than that, he could only hear the silent screams that being in this room conjured in his mind. Will paced the deserted basement that his parents had remodeled while he was in college. They had removed the corridor walls with the claw marks of Marvin Baxter's victims and had made the basement into a place to store all the family Christmas junk along with the many boxes of old photo albums that no one wanted to claim. Nostalgic, Will grabbed several of the photo albums and flicked through them, remembering his older and younger sisters as he drank his beer. Thinking he had been in this dark basement for too long, Will drank the last of his beer and set it down on the shelf. The glass bottle rolled on the rounded bottom and slipped before shattering to the floor. Will swore and went upstairs to grab a broom and dustpan. As he swept up the shards of glass in the dimly lit room, he held his breath to avoid breathing in the dust. Cleaned or not, a small number of particles that shaped this room had been witness to Marvin Baxter's bloodlust. Will swept the last of the bottle's broken pieces into the dustpan as he crouched, moving while remaining low as he got every last grain of glass. His knee bumped the mirror against the opposite wall and it pushed in before sliding into the wall on a sort of automatic track. Will looked up. His heart seized in his chest as he jumped back from another mirror, but this mirror was filled with moving, horrified faces. 
His eyes darted around the horrific sight of the amber-yellow mirror with faces of agony flowing through it from bottom to top like the spirits within were smoke. Of all the things that had scared him in life, this far exceeded the terror he felt when just being within proximity to the mirror. But Will's curiosity prevailed. The hellish visage had been here throughout his life of living in this house. There was something uniquely sinister about the mirror's construction. The frame was charcoal black with curling trim around the inside border. Will set the dustpan on the counter and approached the haunting mirror. He put his fingers through the surface of the glass that was perpetually interrupted by ghostly expressions. His fingers went through liquid like he just stuck his hand into ice water. Will pulled his hand back and looked at the perfectly dry skin of his hand. There was something bizarre and unnatural about the mirror before his eyes. He could hear his heart pounding in his chest as he swallowed hard. Flexing his fingers and taking a deep breath, Will took a full step through the mirror. For thirty seconds he was gone from the basement. He suddenly charged back through the mirror and ran all the way up the stairs before pushing the bookshelf back in front of the stairwell with shaking hands. Swallowing, Will gathered his wallet, phone, and keys and went straight to his truck. He went to the nearest motel and checked in. He spent the night on the floor, wide awake, unable to forget the nightmarish world he had witnessed. Act 3 This had better be good, Will, Sandra said as she smoked a cigarette by her car in front of the Swanson's landing house. Will had just arrived in his truck and got out. He hadn't been back to his house in two days and hadn't slept very much either. You couldn't get a hold of Amy? Will asked. You think Amy is going to help you? Sandra cocked her brow. She wore a black coat and a white scarf. Her brown hair was done loosely so her hair could cover her ears under her woolen black winter cap. Before Dad left, he mentioned strength in numbers. I need... I don't know what I need, but I need someone to go with me into the basement. Jesus Christ, Will, Sandra said, rolling her eyes. You should have let Mom and Dad sell this place. It's a good house, but it's got bad blood. It's got more than that. Please come with me, he pleaded. Whatever, Sandra said. You're, you know, packing, right? Will asked. Sandra furrowed her brow. Are you crazy? I think Dad kept an extra shotgun in the garage, said Will. I called Amy because she was the best shot out of all of us. She was the only one who cared enough to try to impress Dad, Sandra said. You've piqued my interest. What is this all about? I, I can't even explain it without showing it to you, Will shook his head. Come on, let's get inside. So you were too scared to even stay here? Sandra asked as Will closed the door behind her. Yeah, I'm pretty sure none of us would have stayed in this house if we knew what I know now, Will said. He was halfway finished pulling back the bookshelf when the two heard a knock on the door. It's probably Amy. Speak of the devil... Sandra drawled as she opened the door and Amy entered. Amy wore a polo over her long-sleeved shirt and a brown dress that dropped to her black leather boots. She had a blue Walmart bag slung over her shoulder that was far too casual to be considered a purse but held her things just the same. Hey guys, Amy said in her dry voice that Sandra always said sounded masculine. Hey Amy, said Will. Ready to take a trip into the basement? He asked with a grin. All of the color immediately drained from Amy's face. You're not serious, right? Dead serious. I hope you've got that Smith & Wesson Dad gave you in that bag. It's in the car, Amy wrinkled her brow. What on earth would we need a gun for? That's what I was asking. Sandra crossed her arms and pursed her lips. Will finished moving the bookcase and then grabbed everyone a beer. Okay, so as you know, I went down there and found something really scary and then couldn't imagine sleeping in this house. You haven't slept in the last 48 hours, have you? Sandra asked. You said that on the phone, Amy said to Will, ignoring Sandra. Guys, I know it sounds crazy, but strength in numbers. Will set his beer down and beckoned for everyone to follow. Sandra and Amy exchanged a worried look. 
Whether they showed it or not, all three of them had been traumatized by the secret murder room they had uncovered under their cozy house by the lake. No one felt right about going down there, but just as their father had told them dozens of times after the media mess had cleared and the cleanup crew had done their business, the room itself was harmless. They followed Will down the steps and made their way down the narrow corridor to the storage room that had always carried the metallic blood smell. Bleach would never cleanse the stench of decaying blood from the walls and floors. There was another smell that none of them had been able to put their finger on, an otherworldly aroma of something wild. When Sandra saw the bizarre mirror, she immediately jumped back against the opposite wall. What the hell is that? she shrieked. That's not normal. Amy shook her head. Found it by accident when I bumped my knee into this sliding mirror. I don't think anybody ever noticed it but me. So, what movie set did this awful thing come from? And please tell me you were just needing help to take it out to the curb, Sandra said. Nope, it's actually some kind of doorway, Will said. Cool, maybe that'll raise the price when we sell this place. Sandra stepped closer to examine the mirror. When she assessed that the surface wasn't solid, she turned to Will. You didn't go through, did you? I did for a little bit, Will said. That's why I left to get reinforcements. Why didn't you just call the police? Amy asked. Because I knew if I told anyone before I could explore it properly, I'd lose my chance, he said. Good, said Sandra. You'd have to be crazy to go through something like this. Sounds like Sandra's out, Will sighed. You in, Amy? You mean, like, seriously? Amy pointed at the mirror. Yeah, it's scary, but it's kind of cool, Will said. And you want us armed before we go through, Sandra scoffed. How about a big no thank you? I'm going even if you guys stay behind, Will said, and I always thought I was the more cowardly one of the three of us. We're already here, Amy said sheepishly, glancing at Sandra. I will get as close to that thing as it takes to carry it out to the street, but that's it, Sandra said. I'll hold the rope or something while you guys go through. That's not a bad idea, Will said. How about we just go in for five minutes, look around, and then come right back out? That's not so bad, right? What's in there? Sandra demanded. You've been inside. Tell us what you saw and maybe I'll go. It's like temples and a lot of trees, said Will. You go in and then there's the mirror behind you. I went through and mostly wanted to make sure I could come back. After that, I got so scared I just left. Temples and trees, Sandra looked at Amy. Amy shrugged and said nothing. I mean, it's hard to explain, Will said. If you guys aren't interested, then just stay here and I'll go through on my own. He took a step toward the mirror, but Sandra grabbed his shoulder. Quit being a moron. I'm not letting you mess with that thing. I don't think there's any way for you to stop me. Will darted toward the mirror and fell through the eerie opening within the bizarre portal standing before them. Being minus one person doubled the creepy factor of the hidden room as Sandra and Amy scoffed as they had always scoffed at Will's determination to do the opposite of the norm. Jesus, the idiot. Sandra pinched the bridge of her nose. Don't tell Kevin I went in, all right? She told Amy. Kevin was Sandra's fiancé and was known for being rather overprotective. If you're going in, I'm going in, Amy said. Whatever, I'm going after him. If you're coming with, you may as well bring the pistol. I grabbed it earlier. Amy withdrew the Smith & Wesson from her bag. Watch where you point that thing. Let's try to avoid letting this idiotic endeavor end in the emergency room, Sandra said as she approached the mirror. I got your back. Lead the way, Amy smirked as she held the gun at the ready. Sandra warily stepped through the mirror and found herself standing on the hillside overlooking a large forest of stark leafless trees with twisting reaching limbs. She noticed the blood red sky and then charcoal black clouds. The air was that otherworldly stale oxygen smell from the basement, but that's all it smelled like. Climbing from the treetops in the distance were the shadowy steps of three different pyramids that towered to the crimson sky. 
Amy stepped onto the hillside next to Sandra. Whoa, she grimaced as an icy wind whistled through the trees and shook the crisp yellow grass beneath their feet. They took in the eerie world, noticing the mirror standing on the hillside behind them. You guys made it, Will said from down the hill. Where exactly is this place? Sandra asked as she withdrew her phone from her coat pocket only to find that it was dead. Cell phones don't work for whatever reason, Will said. My phone started working again about two hours after I came back to the real world. This is truly insane, Sandra stated. Yeah, it is, Will looked around. It isn't any less weird being in this time than it was last time. The ground beneath them shook. The three of them looked at one another. All right, you've had your fun, let's get the hell out of here, Sandra beckoned. Yeah, something's not right about this, Amy said. I get the feeling, but let's look around a little longer. If things get too weird, we'll leave. Things are already weird. Uncomfortably weird. Like, how in time and space does this place exist? Did we seriously just go through a magic portal like in Dungeons and Dragons? Sandra asked. Holy crap, are those bodies? Amy gaped at the tree line ahead of Will. Will stared at the petrified body of a woman who had been hanging from the tree for what looked like a decade. There was a large hole in her purple chest over where her heart would have been. There were several other bodies hanging from the trees adjacent to the nearest tree. These were Marvin's victims. He had truly extracted the hearts of the women for some insane reason, and then threw their bodies disgracefully from the trees. Time to leave, Sandra shook her head and thumbed over her shoulder to the mirror. Don't you want to see more? Will protested. No, because what if that monster is still here? What if this is why they never found him and his victims? What if he went in here and closed the door after him? It's likely, but those bodies have been there for a long time. Marvin Baxter stopped killing a long time ago based on his journal entries. Seriously? Sandra rolled her eyes. Any information you could glean from a serial killer's notes should be suspect at best. Look, if you want to leave, then leave, but I want to see what's in that temple. Will pointed to the pyramid in the distance. Come on, there's a trail in the woods and everything. It'll be 15-20 minutes, and then we can go home and contact the FBI or sell it on eBay for a million dollars, whatever. But I want to know if what Marvin wrote about is true. Amy pushed past Sandra and descended the hill to join Will. You're not going anywhere without protection. Sandra gave a frustrated sigh and followed them down the hill. Will and Amy led the way between the gnarled and twisted trees, some of which carried the lost corpses of Marvin Baxter's victims. Other than the wind whistling through the forest, making the tree limbs creak, there was no sound save for their shoes crunching over the broken sticks on the dusty trail. A flicker of lightning flashed from a cluster of clouds overhead that were roaming across the bloody sky. They drew nearer to the dark bricks of the ominous pyramid structure. The three had visited the Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico about eight years prior, and this temple looked similar in its structure but not quite as tall. This one stood slightly taller than the trees, although there were taller temple towers jutting from the claws of the forest limbs. Here's your pyramid, Will, Sandra said, her face whiter than any of them had ever seen. They approached the base of the pyramid where there was dried blood visibly stained upon the dark gray steps. A flicker of light made them look to the sky as the red clouds sparkled and flashed with static. What is this place? Amy asked. I think, I think this might have been where Marvin killed all his victims. Yeah, about that whole getting the hell out of here part? Can we maybe make that a priority? Sandra pleaded. What's the problem? Will asked. No one's here. Except this is basically a crime scene and we should show this place to the police. Sandra crossed her arms. We don't get to see what else is in this place if we do that. And I'm cool with it, Sandra said. Just give me like ten minutes to explore the temple. Will raised his flashlight. You guys can stay out here for all I care. I just want to see what's inside. 
Why? Sandra squinted at him. There's nothing in this place that needs our attention. We are rational human beings who want to live normal lives, content with the knowledge that other dimensions don't exist. I keep saying, you don't have to come with me, but I do want to know someone's out here watching my back. Come on, Amy, Will said. When she didn't step closer, the two noticed the terrified expression on her face at the prospect of going inside that strange black stone building. I I can't. She shook her head and held out the pistol to Will. This is as far as I can go. Do what you need to do. It's fine, Amy. I don't think I'll need the gun, but thanks for offering. Will turned and climbed the steps to the yawning rectangular opening that opened to a deep subterranean cavern below. He aimed the flashlight beam across the steps descending into the darkness, and looked over his shoulder at his sisters at the base of the steps. Oh, for Pete's sake! Sander grabbed the Smith & Wesson from Amy and jogged up the black steps to join Will's side. You owe me one later. Act 4 Thanks for coming with me. Will said as he and Sander descended into the darkened depths of the black temple within the world Will had found in the mirror. His flashlight and electric lantern were swallowed by the shadows of the cavernous depths overhead. The stones beneath their feet trembled as grit and sand rained from the ceiling. I'm only going cause... strength in numbers. Sander looked around the wide, rectangular passage and kept the Smith & Wesson clutched tightly in her hands at her front. The floor eventually flattened and the passage wound around a large square room that descended deeper into the earth. The deeper they traveled, the colder the air became. At the bottom of the square room, the passage led down an ornate corridor before opening into a vast cavern. Will's flashlight drifted over the floors and walls as he and Sandra walked down the passage and stood before a room that looked largely unfinished in its construction. There were large, otherworldly drill machines and vehicles for moving large loads of dirt and stone. They had been abandoned and covered with the dust of time. Will's flashlight landed upon an odd cube shape in the middle of the large, incomplete room. As his light traveled over the floor, he saw a great closed iron fist jutting from the broken stone floor below. As he continued examining the massive cube, it started to move. The whole temple began to shake and tremor as the great fist in the middle of the room relaxed. A skeleton slowly slipped and fell to the floor from the iron-gloved hand. The cube rotated in a set of glowing red eyes viewed from what now appeared to be a big helmet. The cube itself was easily the size of a large building. Who's there? A huge voice boomed through the temple, unsettling the perfect silence. The sudden urge to run gripped Will, but Sander grabbed his arm. I see you. You will speak or I will destroy you and your world, Marvin Baxter. Will and Sander exchanged a baffled look. Marvin Baxter? Will asked. I cannot hear you, Marvin Baxter. We're not Marvin Baxter, Will yelled down to the sentient helmet below. Come closer and bring your sacrifice. It ordered in a neutral tone. Whoa, I'm no sacrifice, Sander yelled. The two made for the corridor behind them, but a huge wall slammed over the threshold leading out. Your insolence will not be tolerated, the voice boomed. Sandra turned around, and like a cornered gunslinger, she clicked off the safety and thumbed the hammer as she raised the Smith & Wesson pistol, lined it up with the red eyes within the helmet in the middle of the room, and fired. Sparks flashed from different parts of the cube as she met her mark with three bullets in succession. I have traversed the recesses of the galaxy, powered through asteroid fields, and even orbited suns. Your tedious projectiles will not damage me. Let us out of here, Will yelled. Sand rained from the ceiling as the structure around them rattled. Oh god, Will, what do we do? Sandra asked. I don't know, Will shook his head. Did you see any passages other than the one we came from? I thought I saw a narrow channel to our right, Sandra said. 
I grow weary of your kind's cowardice, the voice boomed. I have already proven to Marvin Baxter that I will not tolerate insolence. The giant fist fell upon the skeleton on the floor below. A second later, the floor broke, and the giant hand slowly slipped into the darkness below. The building around them trembled. The floor around the giant god of a creature began to crack and shatter. This way! Will grabbed Sandra's hand and they traveled along the walkway to what was indeed a narrow passage leading to an unknown corridor that had been carved as an escape route when the place had been built. The two ran for the passage as the walls began to shift. The monstrosity of a creature roared as they escaped into the hallway and ran down a shaking corridor. A wall opened to a square channel leading back up the steps. Their passage to escape open, they ran with renewed speed up the stairs as the whole building began to collapse in on itself. One of the monstrous metal fists punched through the square floor bottom below, tearing pieces of the building from behind Will and Sandra. The last of the stone steps careened and began to pull from the wall just as the two jumped through the threshold into the massive stone stairwell leading to the bloody light above. The temple caved as gargantuan panels of the ceiling crashed to the steps on either side of Will and Sandra. They mounted the stairs as the temple was pulled into the earth behind them. Will and Sandra scrambled down the remaining black stone steps as Amy gaped at them with awestruck terror upon her face. Run! Will yelled, gasping at the pain in their sides. Will and Sandra met with Amy. They hurried up the hillside toward the woods as the ground quaked beneath them. The trees waved and danced. The dangling bodies of Marvin Baxter's victims swang with their motion. Will glanced over his shoulder before they entered the forest to see the form of a massive godlike figure emerging from the ruins of the temple they had just left. He realized that the helmet was a Nemez, Egyptian-style headdress. It was nearly impossible to distinguish from their distance within the cavern at the bottom of the temple anything other than the red eyes and the shape of its head. Hurrying into the forest, Will, Amy, and Sandra continued running as huge footfalls thundered behind them. They ran as fast as they could, breaking from the trees to mount the hill toward the black-rimmed mirror in the distance. The tower of a figure bounded after them, crushing trees in its wake. Casting a final look over his shoulder, Will saw the permanent angry expression carved into the godlike figure's face. It looked like a giant pharaoh as it kicked through the trees of the forest below. Come on! Sandra stopped by the mirror. Amy and Will ran straight through as the monstrous pharaoh reached up the hill. Sandra stepped through and entered the basement. Will grabbed the head of the mirror and tried to pull it down off the wall, but it wouldn't budge. Two giant metal fingers pushed through the opening of the mirror and gripped the wall around it. Will gave up and dashed behind Amy and Sandra up the hallway as the house began to shake. They climbed the steps and emerged into the hallway of their lake house. The wall around the stairs was torn away behind them along with the basement and hall bathroom. The three didn't stop. They charged through the kitchen and came to a stop around Sandra as she fumbled with the sliding glass door latch to the back patio. The moment she slid it open, Amy dashed out with Will behind her. Sandra followed and the two hurried around the side of the house to Amy's car on the street. The whole house on the lakeside was pulled into oblivion behind them as a giant metal fist broke through the earth below. The three piled into Amy's Prius and Amy shakily turned the car on to put it in reverse just in time to back out of the way of the falling metal hand. The giant angry face of the pharaoh emerged from the ruins where their lake house on Swanson's Landing had been. The ancient god pulled itself free as Amy whipped the Prius around to accelerate down the dirt road to the street. Behind them, the godlike creature emerged from the earth and stood over the lakeside beneath the cloudy night sky. Will saw its shape against the clouds over the tree line as Amy put the pedal to the floor. He watched as the creature gave a furious, silent roar into the night before dropping low. A second later, the giant being launched into the sky.
It disappeared through the cloud cover, and that was the last the three ever saw of that ancient and peculiar being. They came back the next morning after staying wide awake at Amy's house. Sandra's Honda had been spared, but Will's truck looked like someone had literally flattened it with a steamroller. The house was basically splinters around the pit that was the basement. Everything was gone as though the place had been hit with a meteor. The one thing that perplexed Will long after the pieces of the house had been thrown away by the cleanup crew was the lack of any mirror or mirror frame within the house's debris. That world where Marvin Baxter had disposed of his victims was gone, swallowed by the furious will of a godlike presence that had been contained within that house. Sandra, Amy, and Will occasionally asked one another about the things they saw in that other world. They told Amy about their confrontation with the towering god, but could hardly believe what they had witnessed firsthand. Many of the seemingly random ramblings of sacrifice within Marvin Baxter's journal notes made a lot more sense when they put together that Marvin was sacrificing these women on behalf of a being from below. When Marvin refused to kill further, the being crushed him. It wasn't until Gordon Taylor, Marvin Baxter's stepfather, finally responded to Will's inquiries that he was able to get a solid answer about the mirror on the phone. That mirror had been wrapped up in our attic for decades. I got it from my grandmother. I'd heard it was some piece of art that my great-grandfather had gotten during a trip to Egypt in the early 1900s. Other than that, I don't know much about it. I honestly didn't know Marvin had taken it. But you knew what it looked like, Will asked. I don't think I ever took the tarp off of it, but I did see the black frame. I've been meaning to sell all that old junk up there, but I'd have to organize it first. I imagine you have some pretty interesting stuff stored up there if you had this up there as well. I recommend a bit of caution if you do get around to scoping that stuff out in the near future. That mirror was quite an interesting find. Probably was. People in my family usually have good taste for antiques like that. Sorry it was destroyed by the accident, Gordon said. It couldn't be helped, but thanks for your help in getting back to me about all this. Sure, Will, said Gordon. Keep in touch if you ever figure out anything about what happened to Marvin. Will paused for a few seconds, remembering the giant metal fists that had crushed Marvin Baxter. I'll let you know if I find anything. Good luck to you, Mr. Taylor. You too. The two hung up, and Will went about his sketching of faces etched with fury. He sat in his hotel room, drawing image after image of the godlike creature. He needed to find out more information about this being, and surely someone somewhere out there knew something. Will had to know more, because now that the being had been loosed from its long slumber... What was to prevent it from coming back to fulfill its dark promise? This concludes episode 5 of the Apocalypse Theater podcast. That story was actually based on a nightmare I had when I was a kid. I was sitting on the couch when a news article came on television about this secret room that had been found within a house. A grandmother and several kids were outside as the place had been covered with yellow caution tape by the police. The camera went into the basement and the imagery was much more gruesome than I described here in this story. Some people hate their nightmares, but I consider them to be excellent fuel for nightmarish short stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and feel free to tweet your favorite nightmares at me. I'm at Allen underscore author, or you can drop a post on the Apocalypse Theater Facebook page. If you enjoyed this episode, throw us a like or subscribe, good review, or go over to Audible and buy The Last Necromancer audiobook. It's pure fun, pure story. If you like stories like the ones you hear on the podcast, the audiobooks are even better. Anyway, for more stories like the ones you'll hear on the podcast, go to audibletrial.com slash apocalypse theater podcast. Link is in the episode description. 
If you want to get the last Necromancer for free, check out my website at ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. Thanks everybody, see you next time. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, purchase one of my audiobooks from Audible, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2018.